Welcome to NCAGT's podcast. Our mission is to dismantle the they'll be fine myth that often surrounds gifted learners. Our goal is to address the excellence gap faced by high ability students, including those from diverse backgrounds. Join us as we advocate for gifted and talented scholars to unlock their full potential. Please note the ideas and thoughts shared here are as diverse as our guests, not always reflecting the official NCAGT stance. So keep an open mind and let's explore a variety of perspectives together. On today's episode of They'll Be Fine, we sat down with Susan Malberg with Diffie Q Metrics. Susan began her career in education with Explore Learning, leading implementations of gizmos and reflex in 27 states across the country. She then transitioned to the classroom where she taught high school English for nearly a decade. During this time, Susan served as a chairman of the Leveled Up Committee, an initiative designed to foster equitable and inclusive access to honors level education. She holds degrees from the University of Virginia and the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, including a PhD in curriculum and instruction. Her research interests in performance assessment and differentiated learning models led to Diffie Q, where she currently oversees a team of professionals dedicated to enhancing educational outcomes for all students. This episode was such an interesting topic because as an educator myself, I discuss in the episode how data can sometimes be a scary word for a lot of educators because it feels overwhelming. And I think it's also super, super important. And when you know something's important, but it's also overwhelming, it's just a catastrophe. So DiffyQ is a really really innovative platform that is built for educators who want to collect data in an organized way and want to do what's best for their students with that data. Let's take a listen. All right, so um, what brought you, Susan, into this world of education with DiffyQ? Yeah, great question. I think that I always knew from a very early age that I was going to be a teacher or an educator in some capacity. I think growing up, school and a school environment was very much a safe haven for me. And I think that that's a sentiment that's shared by a lot of people uh, within this space. I think thinking about gifted education specifically, I very much could have been one of those students who fell through the cracks. I grew up in a very rural district. It was low economic. Um, At the time, I came from like a one-parent household, but I ended up just testing really well, and I think that allowed me to access early resources that even like other members of my family weren't necessarily able to access. But even then, my early experiences in the 90s were very lonely, right? A lot of schools didn't have like gifted and talented programs in place. So my teachers dealt with me, like I remember I would come into the classroom like first, second grade on a Monday, take a pretest, answer all the questions correctly. And then they would send me in the hallway with like educational toys or tell me to write a play or things that they felt were enrichment at the time that I took for granted, but then realized kind of the social isolation that came from that as I, Mm -hmm. you know, advanced. So I think there just reached a point in my own career that I felt like I wanted to go back and work with students who might have experienced some of these different things. Maybe it was like needing personalized enrichment, or maybe it was just like needing someone to recognize talents and give them like the supports that they needed. And DiffyQ has just been an extension of that education journey for me. So I always joke with my husband, I'm... I guess, 37 right now. And I've been in school for the last 33 years of my life. Yeah. (laughs) Can't get away. Exactly. (laughs) Wow. Man, that just makes me think about my brother and, and just some like friends that I've talked to who were like gifted, like younger and that the things that like the experiences that they had and how different it is to like how things are today. And it makes me happy for the kids today, but I hate that like you were sitting out in the hallway and yeah, the social isolation that came from that 
And I'm just thinking about what we know about a lot of gifted kids and how the extra push sometimes they need with SEL or, or with like social interactions with people. That's just, I, I hate that that's what used to happen, but glad it's not that way anymore. <laughs> exactly. But even now there's this fine line because sometimes people think extra enrichment means extra work. Yeah. And so there's this question that we need to grapple with of how can we provide like depth of understanding, depth of experience without just adding onto the plate. Because I think students, especially these days with such an access to like different content and different information are pushing back against that and raising the red flag. This is not what's going to help me get to the next level of my education. Yeah. Yeah. That's I, they, they are very, they will definitely advocate, I feel like yes, for themselves. Yes. And yeah, that's definitely a big, I feel hot topic is making <laughs> sure it's, it's yeah. Like you said, like providing them with a deeper understanding and a, and a way to further their learning, not just continue to do more work. Yeah, I think that's exactly. a very big common, I think that happens a lot. When you attempt to explain your life's work to a person who's not living and breathing gifted education, how would you explain the word, what it means to be identified as gifted? How would you explain that to them? Mm-hmm. I think this is a really tough question. I think the same way we look at, at slapping on a label of gifted is concurrent with some of the conversations in the neurodivergent space when we think about what does it mean to be like diagnosed as autistic, for example, like being gifted is going to manifest in so many different ways that are unique to learners and sometimes even unique to the space that the learner is in at that moment. My daughter, my youngest daughter is in third grade in Durham County Schools right now, and her favorite thing to do at night is to watch episodes of Young Sheldon, and she doesn't get much screen time, but it always makes me think about this episode earlier on in the seasons where the twins, Sheldon and then his sister Missy, are participating in this twin study. And you have Sheldon who is really resonates with this idea of like high intellectual ability and like quantitative ways to measure cognitive abilities. And he's excited as he's going through the multiple choice tests and commenting on how easy he thinks the questions are. But then when it gets to these questions that are a little more amorphous that require interesting insights, it's really Missy who starts to show like social intelligence and emotional intelligence and her ability to think creatively and make connections of all these different aspects of the pictures that she's seeing. And I think that at the core, that's what we have to realize as educators. And when we're dealing with any type of exceptional learner, there's going to be opportunities and there's going to be challenges. And the real question is, how do we respond to that? Like, how do we nurture students based on the ways that they're manifesting their quote unquote giftedness or what sort of stimuli are we able to provide them and help them understand? Because they're going to be grappling with that label themselves, or they might not even realize what people mean when Mm -hmm. they say you're this or not this. So really thinking about it holistically. Yeah. And and that's something that I've learned so much over the past year and a half is those like misconceptions, like what people think of when they hear gifted, especially if you talk to someone outside of education, Yes, like what they initially will start saying, or they think and you're like, not quite, there's more to it than that. And, and I love that, that open um, way of thinking that you just explained. I feel like is helpful. And, and I feel like sometimes it's hard though, cause you do have to like explain it in some way, yes. but I like having the, I, the, it's open to, this is one way it could look, but it's not exactly that either, <laughs> which is confusing sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like there, it's certainly norm, normed explanations, but even within that, it, it's a spectrum. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. If someone has never heard of DiffyQ metrics, How would you explain it to them? I would say, simply put, that DiffyQ is really just a powerful tool for educators to help support and facilitate authentic learning in their classroom. So in the years before COVID, there was really this kind of shift in terms of best educational practices and approaches to pedagogy, where we started to see these really exciting collaborative strategies enter the classroom and be more accepted. You had projects 
project-based learning and problem-based learning and inquiry design model, then COVID happened and there it necessitated this kind of shift to more like online content-based instructional tools for our students. And now we're finally getting to a point where we can shift back and explore um, some of those exciting things. But with that has always come challenges because I think one, you have to look at the complexity of what it takes to teach with those types of strategies in a classroom and in today's modern diverse classrooms. Mm -hmm. There's also this like very traditional idea that there's so much subjectivity in place because the data is coming from a teacher and maybe you're not norm scoring across a team or maybe there's just too much data that comes from those big projects and things like that, what do you do with it? And at the end of the day, admin needs transparency. They need a way that they can define how a school is doing. But then if you look on the other end of things, it's really hard to, it's difficult to truly know a student just from their headline score. So DiffEQ combines those two things. It puts the power in the teacher to do these things within their classroom and still have the data that they need to be successful in doing so, but then also to support them as they talk to their admin and advocate for a right to incorporate these into their learning and their teaching with all of these other demands that are still necessary within the school system. And as a teacher, I feel like when I hear data or if I say yeah, that word, it's a dirty word. sometimes, yeah, they're <laughs> like, oh, data. Because yes, it's so important and we have to use data. We have yes. to, we got to, what are we doing if we're not like looking at data and, and, and looking at different types of data. But I do think that I just think sometimes, like you said, there's too much and that's overwhelming. And I vividly know I can think right to some data that we've gotten before or I've taken on students and I'm like, this is beautiful, but it's too much and I'm overwhelmed. And then I feel like sometimes people then just don't like, then they just avoid the data or avoid using it. I love that like you guys can make that manageable and make it useful. I think that's great because then- I feel like we're doing what's best for kids and not just guessing like what's best for kids. Yeah. And it's all about the conversations that come from data because there are dangers to taking data out of context or not looking at it holistically. And that happens sometimes, but I think that's almost like an argument for embracing it because if you're able to support a bigger picture in a language that certain people understand, I think it, it just helps everybody move forward. Yeah. Yeah. So what types of services do you offer to educators? First, we just have the platform itself. Looking at your standard ed tech, you're able to utilize it on a yearly subscription basis. But then we go beyond that as well. So we do have a team of professional development coordinators that can provide PD in various forms. So obviously you have just like your standard onboarding that you would have with any type of ed tech product. But then we're also able to do bespoke PD or topic-based. So that might come into play. Maybe you've been utilizing DiffEQ for a year and you're ready to take it to the next level, or maybe you're really focusing on something specific within your school's overall strategy. The data-driven insights is the goal for the year, or that you want to really work with Think, Pair, Share, and Jigsaw, and how do you track that? Mm -hmm. um, something that's like very specific. And then the third service is really analytics consulting. And that goes back a little bit to what you were just saying. I think the, the unfortunate truth is sometimes school districts feel like when they hire an outside consultant, they have to pay a lot of money for that. And you're providing all of this data and you hope that something magical mm -hmm. is spit out. But at the end of the day, like a lot of us as educators are not data scientists or like strategists. Yeah. So we're able to actually sit down and have one-to-one -one conversations about data. What does it mean? What does it imply? What would we need to answer questions that you might have? And how can we go about doing that? So I think that is really where um, it becomes like so much of a conversation and a, and a partnership. And all of those things can be looked at depending on where you are in your DiffEQ journey, or even if it's something that you just want to bring in for a one-off opportunity with a pain point that you're having. I love that you said that we are not like data analysts and strategists because I feel like we're expected to be sometimes yes. like, yes. I think that's something in education we're expected to 
beautifully do, be able to do so many different roles and just expect to just do it and figure it out because it's what the kids need. And I think we know that's what the kids need, but sometimes we just can't, we're not like we went to school to be teachers and, and we're doing all these things, but especially like something like this, that's so important. I love that you offer that to educators to, okay, you did, you are not an expert in this, but we can help you and help make sure that you're doing what you need to do with, for your students. I think that's interesting. You mentioned think, pair, share, and jigsaw. What would that look like? Like, how do you take data on that? Yeah, that's a great question. I know that our team's putting together some really exciting information about jigsaws as part of the conference presentation that oh, we'll cool. be doing. So really looking forward to that. Yeah. Um, but when I think of how I could use DiffyQ within kind of that collaborative instructional strategy environment, I might give you an example of the classroom discussion or a Socratic seminar. So obviously, whenever I'm getting my group of students together to talk, I want to have some sort of objective. <laughs> I want to know what we're talking about, because otherwise, like people are going to be quiet or you're going to get a lot of summary or the conversation is going to go in a lot of great directions, but you're not going to really accomplish what you needed to do uh, for that day. So the first great thing about DiffyQ is that as an educator, my kind of first First interaction for the day on the platform is going to be to set that expectation with a rubric. It doesn't have to be a fancy rubric. It's just, this is my learning objective, what I'm trying to get out of this conversation. And as an educator, I'm going to make sure my students have like a version of that before I have any discussion as well, because I want to prepare them to really have a robust discussion. The second thing I can then use the data for is like interactive groupings within the activity. So maybe I want to do my class discussion, like a favorite strategy of mine would have the two circle approach where the outer circle are the listeners mm -hmm. and then the inner circle, you have them engaging in a very specific part of the conversation and then maybe you switch out. So maybe I'm arranging that inner circle because I know that certain people have exhibited um, durable skills and they might be able to facilitate it. Or maybe I know that I have some data lacking for a student, like maybe they've been absent for a while and I don't really have any, like a student artifact to back up their understanding of theme or characterization. So I might strategically put them in for one of those like warm up conversation questions just so I can get a data point, not have to worry about compliance and past assignments, things like that, and then put it in, right? So then I can take all of that kind of observation and use it to build out the unique profile of the learner. I think another way then that you can use DiffyQ within that is after that conversation, I can put any notes that I made, et cetera, use it to score proficiency within the dashboard. But I can also have students maybe write an exit ticket after the discussion, or we know that sometimes discussions go over. Mm -hmm. oh, <laughs> so yeah. maybe someone didn't get a chance to talk, but from that I can really see their understanding of what we discussed and the skills that I, I'm trying to present in that particular lesson. And maybe it's a student that I know I have some sort of cross-functional conversation with that week. Like maybe there's a 504 meeting that's been called or an IEP, or maybe the student um, is like up for discussion because there's this question of maybe should they be in like an AIG program, but we don't have enough data points. I can actually take that exit ticket and link it within the rubric for the student. So then instead of having to keep another piece of paper on my busy desk with all mm -hmm. my other papers, I have it online and I can easily bring it up with the team um, to show like this is what the student did. This is why I'm viewing it as this level of proficiency. I want to show you this artifact. Let's discuss what's here. So that's just one kind of surface level example, but I think we can see that across a, a lot of different subjects and content methods and things like that, depending on how you're using DiffyQ. That makes me think of, we used to have MTSS meetings when I was a mm -hmm. gen ed teacher. And I just remember going to those meetings. And when I knew the meeting was coming, having to like hunt and find all these artifacts and pieces of student work and data. And I'm just envisioning that would be really nice to like have it all in one place. So you like upload a picture of it. Is that how it like would work like to the rubric yes. and, and it yeah. had it like in an organized way. 
You could. Anytime you wanted any sort of student artifact, so it could be a document, it could be a picture, you could put just notes. So maybe mm. the observation was just something you wrote down while the student was talking. Maybe you write down a direct quote. You can put it there just to review at a later date. So there are a lot of different ways that you can make marry like qualitative data with the quantitative data to support your cause. And that a lot of times comes under scrutiny because you might see specific just like scores in a grade book. And we all know grade books sometimes don't give the full picture. Like it's yeah. more about compliance or you might not understand the complexities of the assignment. So we've all been called down to the guidance counselor and they're like, this kid has all the hundreds, but then they scored really poorly on the test. And you're like, these were fill in the blank things we did in class. And then this mm. was like a summative test. And parents don't always understand that. Students yeah. don't always understand that. So it just really helps everyone have a better understanding of like strengths and weaknesses and opportunities for growth and where they're at on any given day. I feel like grading is such an interesting topic to, to hear people discuss because just, I think it's so subjective sometimes, especially with like different subjects, like reading, I feel is very yes. subjective. And I've always struggled with assessing and grading reading. And I feel like math is a bit more like cut and dry. Like they get it. They don't, this is where they're at. I feel like reading something that personally I've always struggled with grading, but I love that organized way of, of putting it all together to see the full picture of the student. Is it, so when you see like dashboards, so I, as the teacher would have a dashboard, I know some like platforms, like students, is there any kind of like student, I don't know, would the student ever need to get into it on their computer or anything? Or is this like the teacher's like place to like house everything? What is yeah. that like? So where we currently are, it's just teachers and then you have an admin. So a teacher dashboard is going to be very specific to their classes, their students. Admin, of course, can view things across grade levels, okay. things like that, as well as import like external data to marry it with the data that educators are, are inputting uh, within the service. We are doing some exciting work. This I don't know if I should say this. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go ahead and say it. Okay. Um, so <laughs> So we have submitted an RFP for uh, research funding through the Department of Ed, where we want to, in version two, create a generative scaffolding model for mm. students. So that would transition it to a student uh, facing platform. But at the same time, like you can, as an educator, give like snapshots of where a student is through email, et cetera, or save their file and you see a unique learner profile with each student, but they don't log in currently. Okay. okay. Yeah. That's cool though. That, yeah. that makes sense. We're going to push the pause button for just a second to share some really exciting news. NCAGT's annual conference is heading to Greensboro, North Carolina on March 14th and 15th, 2024. This is an event you won't want to miss. For the latest updates on registration, keynotes, and all the things conference-related, head over to ncagt.org. And here's the best part. If you have a burning question or need more information, we've got you covered. Just shoot us an email at conference at ncagt.org. All right, let's get back to it. So I saw on your website that you guys have something about rubric creation, and I'm just really interested in that because I feel like there's such power in rubrics, but sometimes they can take some time to create. And so I just, I want to know more about that. Yeah. Um, for DiffyQ, rubrics are really a means to an end, right? We knew going into this that rubrics are the cornerstone of the backwards planning process. So anytime you're thinking about data, they, it always starts that way. And we know best practices, teachers should be thinking that way anyway, right? You go in, you have a learning objective, what you're trying to map it to. And the great thing about rubrics is it's non-binary. So instead of just yes, no, did my student get this or not, which doesn't often tell us a lot of things. There are a lot of conflating factors. It really allows you to take this proficiency approach to the depth of what your student knows and is able to do. So within DiffyQ, the rubric itself is the key to what unlocks the, the data aggregation and the insights that 
come from that. So you're really tracking down to the specific skill level and even subset of standards, how a child is performing. I think having taught high school, you'll look at our state standards sometimes, and they will be very long. It'll list every single um, punctuation point that a student needs to know. And maybe a student's great at punctuation, but doesn't get the semicolon, which was called out in Virginia state yeah. standards. So when you just look at it overall from like a multiple choice test or something, or like other data you see, it's hard to pinpoint. And when it's hard to pinpoint, it's hard to target what is there. So within our rubrics, we made it as simple as possible for educators because all of the state standards, common core standards, certain other standards are preloaded. When mm -hmm. a teacher first sets up her dashboard, if she is using a certain set of North Carolina standards, they're the ones that she's going to see, be able to choose from either from like the standards code or, or keywords. So it's a, as easy as possible. And then that also comes with if you're a school district and you're trying to measure a certain set of like durable skills, for instance, like that in essence is like a coded set of standards. So you can track collaboration and critical thinking or, or whatever you're working with. And we've also worked um, with some specialists who track things like WIDA standards, things like that, that are a little outside of the norm. They can do that too. And then it's, so it's through that rubric creation and through the aggregation that it unlocks that you start to get deeper and deeper insights over time, because every time a student interacts with a particular skill, you're building out their profile. And then that also helps with gaps when you have transient students who weren't there that day. And you can see trends like, <laughs> mm. was this an outlier or is this like a persistent pattern of behavior that's going to support some greater conversation that um, I'm having? And it also then helps with your professional learning team or your PLC chats that you might be having. Yeah. Like if, if you have this set rubric that everyone is using, you're going to be better able to like apples to apples compare a full across like a full group of your students. So that's really when you think about what's happening right now with data-driven decision-making. As a single educator, you're often looking at it within the context of your classroom, but when you go out at that macro level, that's when you start to see, is this something I need to deal with as an indi individual level, like one-on-one -on -one with the student, or is this like a greater strategy that we can start implementing with all, of, all the students that we have? That's so true about like grade level discussions. And I like, use like apples to apples, because I feel like sometimes that doesn't happen. If you graded it one way and I graded it another way, I think the rubric is going to help us all make sure that we're all on the same page and grading things equally in the same way and definitely help with making, I just am thinking it's so much information yeah. that it sounds like in like a much more simpler way to put all of that information. I'm just envisioning like the spreadsheets that we've made before. Yes, yeah, no more spreadsheets. It does yeah. it for you. But then to your point, I think it's twofold, right? On the one hand, if you are doing the exact same thing, yes, there's those norm scoring conversations, but then it also supports teacher autonomy in the sense that if you all agree to teach a particular skill or standard or what have you, you don't necessarily do it in the same way or even with the same content and you don't necessarily need to be doing it that way sure. so it gives teachers like a little more freedom to teach in the way they teach with the students that they have but then still come together and have robust conversations yeah that makes me think of how DiffyQ could help with collaborative instructional strategies mm -hmm. could you talk a little bit to that yeah so I think the key word with strategy is that it's an approach that you are trying with a group of learners on any given day. And when I was in the classroom, I would take particular strategies and I would weave them into what we were doing for an entire school year. I would say, okay, this school year, I'm going to really focus on levels of questioning, and I'm going to take the first two weeks of school to really teach levels of questioning to my students and then reinforce it with everything that we do. And I want to maybe track that throughout the year towards like a SMART goal or something that I have in place. But then I also want to think about how I can incorporate that into other strategies. So if I'm doing a station rotation and I am giving students different resources to read 
all moving towards um, a general conversation. We're going to have it afterwards. How can I get them to engage with the text in a way that will unlock the same things I'm trying to unlock with levels of questioning and so forth? So I'm going to use DiffyQ to help me differentiate those stations for my learners while still like rooting the activity in this overarching goal. If I go into DiffyQ and I look at the last time I did an activity of this sort and I said, okay, this is what happened two weeks ago when we did this very similar type of station rotation. This is how the students did. These are maybe the students that needed a little more support. Here are the students that excelled really well. I wanna you know, take this as an opportunity to provide some enrichment, to make them grapple with something a little more heavily this time. And I think the more you do that, the more it becomes just like a natural part of your teacher facilitation. And then the better insights you're going to get from it as you aggregate. So that's like certainly one way that you can do it. I think another way I've used it is to really understand what's not working. Mm -hmm. If I really drill down into a specific skill or, or, or something within the platform. And I notice that overall proficiency is like pretty good across my class. But every time I do this particular, use this particular strategy within my class, it's terrible. Like maybe gallery walks just don't work with my six period for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. I'm going to use that to reflect and adapt my instruction. And I think that's something that all educators know we're supposed to do after our lessons, but it's hard, right? What are we yeah. really adapting on? our observations, like how we felt the lesson went that day. Yeah. But this really just provides the support and also allows you to like take a step back and maybe see things that you don't see like in the moment or because you had five different distractions during the period or they called you on the intercom immediately and you forgot that you even did that because now you're in a three-day snow break vacation. So it's just all about how can I use this as a tool to get better as a teacher because I think all educators just want to get better and we want to do better at meeting the needs of our learners. Yeah. I like that you said that like it'll show you what strategies aren't working, but also which ones are working. Yeah. Like there may be something that we're doing that we don't even realize well, your kids are doing like they, they're getting it after yes. you use that strategy and we may not even realize it. So I, I think that's amazing that would show what's what you're doing that's really working and you don't even realize it. Yeah. Love that. Mm -hmm. I think we could all agree. It's weird, but classes tend to have personalities sometimes. So something that is a big win for one class might not be for the same level of learners mm -hmm. in, a, in a different class. Yeah. yeah. Another word that you said that I feel like is sometimes like scary word in education is differentiation. I feel like sometimes that just makes people, and we've had an episode on differentiation and our few, honestly, and I feel like it's just, it's just one of those things that it feels like that's going to be a lot of work. That's going to yes. take a lot more work, yes. a lot more planning. And so people then just don't do it. Or maybe they think that and they don't realize it really isn't going to be as bad as you think it is. And think about the benefits that you're going to have because of it. So I think that's awesome that there are things that DFEQ can help with differentiation. I think a lot of people would really be interested in that. Another thing I was thinking about was when I think of data entry, I think of something <laughs> that I do at the end of the week and I'm like, oh, I'm going to put all this stuff into my spreadsheet or something. And I, so is DFEQ something you, you would say that people would use like on the daily, like we would, you would use it throughout your week, not just at one point in the week. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. I would say with any type of data, the more data that you input, the more refined your insights are going to be. I've always been a very tech savvy teacher. I would sit down at the end of the day and go through my canvas and grade and, and leave my feedback. For me, it would make sense to do that, right? If I'm going through a stack of student artifacts of whatever kind, I'm going to you know, click it into DFEQ. The nice thing about, again, like the rubric interface is you can put as much information or as little information as you need. On a very basic level, if you're just clicking for proficiency, you're getting a lot of insights from that, even if you're not taking the time to upload an artifact or, or leave feedback. And you may not need to leave feedback because again, it's really for you. It's not student facing. Yes. At the same time, if you're an educator who maybe is wanting to use it just for a very specific goal to dip your foot in the water, and you might not 
want a full picture from like all the different types of formative assessment that you're doing, but you know that you have really important summatives that you're giving every three weeks, or maybe you want to set up like an A-B test where your students are taking like a multiple choice summative, but you also really believe in PBL and want to show that the type of results you're getting from that, you could very strategically just use it for certain things as well. And you could even use it with just particular demographics of students. So I've seen it used within a summer school level because you have all of these different students who might have a lot of different remediation needs. And a lot of times with remediation, you're just trying to touch on everything and hope that it sticks for the student that it needs to stick with. And that's not the best approach. It's not the most engaging approach, but it's easy to track for a targeted intervention or a targeted enrichment over time without feeling like you need to do everything. So I think if anything, the best thing to do and what I would advise if this was a bigger implementation is for everyone to align on expectations because you don't want someone to feel like (laughs) they have this, it's supposed to Mm -hmm. take time away. It's supposed to give you back time. It's supposed to remove the burden and it's supposed to give you really powerful insights you couldn't otherwise get. So it shouldn't be an extra load. It should take a load off of your back. That sounds nice. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) Sounds great. Living the Um, dream. (laughs) Yes, definitely. So that's something I was wondering too, is if people have never heard of of DIFFEQ, they might just want to know what are some like ways that like, and some different scenarios, I guess, how schools have used it. So summer school is an example. I think that's, I would never even thought about that. That would be great information during summer school, but, or is it something that like a whole district would maybe purchase as a subscription? Is it something that individual schools have use. What what are some examples of that? Yeah, great. So it is a subscription and it is a site-based subscription. So the idea is that obviously that's what's going to give you holistic insights. And then as with sites, districts are, are welcome to look at it at multiple sites. Although I will say that a lot of times you'll have a district that might be looking at particular groups of schools. So maybe you have like Title I schools that specifically um, are being looked at throughout a year for a particular purpose, and then you might want to look at it with them. Um, so it depends on the strategic needs of the school itself. But it's also, um, I've seen it used very successfully with a subject level team. For instance, in Virginia, there's this shift to IDM, which is inquiry design model within um, history specifically. I was being tested, IDM was like tested and piloted for a while before COVID, but now they have to do it. And IDM can be very challenging sometimes because of the complexity. It's rooted in this idea that you're linking the content to this real world idea and you're engaging with it in certain ways. But just like with the challenges of differentiation that you were mentioning, if there are students who either lack particular foundational skills that kind of scaffold up to some of that higher order thinking, Or if you have learners that maybe just don't engage with content in that particular way, or you haven't built them up through levels of questioning to think about how to grapple with particular challenges and so forth, you might just have learners that just don't turn anything in, or learners who are used to more traditional, I'm answering this history question, and aren't really producing things in the way they are are meant to produce it within the IDM model, Mm -hmm. and they're able to use the data from DiffEQ to really think about how to target specific learners, build their specific skills, and then get them back and engaged with that authentic learning task quickly without having to get frustrated, without having to create like groupings that would create like a divide among learners. And then also when you think about Vygotsky and like research about zone of proximal development, you're giving everyone like the same opportunity to be still be engaged in these high level conversations while you're maybe doing like very specific pullouts and then watching, did this intervention like work for the student? 
how did that manifest in the next time that I looked at like their task overall? So I think that's really great. So if you have a team of teachers who are dealing with a specific initiative like that, it's a great way to, and a lot of that kind of learning doesn't really have its own siloed ed tech programs that are made like curriculum in a box. Like Mm -hmm. I love STEM and I think there are so many cool like STEM curriculum in a box type things out there now, but English and history kind of gets left out a lot. Mm -hmm. So it's good to have a support hub for that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we don't, I skipped over the data-driven insights question, but because I feel like we've spoken a little bit about it, but is there anything else that you wanted to add about how DiffyQ can help with data-driven insights? Yeah. We certainly talked a lot about the ways it can inform instructional strategies, initiatives. I think the other kind of magic for it and something that's very dear to our team is that it can facilitate quick win opportunities. So a lot of times if we look at the way that um, we pace assessment, you'll have the big assessment at the beginning of the quarter, the end of the quarter. And from there, you see what students are falling behind or, or doing really great and need enrichment. But by that time, it's on to the next quarter and it's left behind. Yeah. The great thing about using data-driven insights is that you can utilize them more in real time so you can support your learners in ways they need to be supported before it gets to that next big check. And I think that's what's really important because even at the end of the year, we often lose students mm-hmm. and it's the new year. We talk about the summer slide. Do we really do anything about the summer slide? So it's quick wins, little efforts that keep you from having to deal with the big avalanche later on. And I think that's really what it means to do the best for your students, give them what they need at an individual level within like the context of all this other stuff that we're doing. Yeah. That sounds beautiful. I, when you were explaining that I was in my mind picturing like those times where that's happened, like where we wait till the end to think about all of that data. And then then it would have been nicer to know that information earlier on. So I think that was very, would be very helpful. I think that's awesome. Do you have an academically talented child who's looking for a challenging and exciting summer program? Summer Institute for the Gifted provides innovative academic programs for exceptional students from all over the world. Enroll now at some of the top universities in the country, including UNC Chapel Hill, for courses like robotics, creative writing, and neuroscience. These courses are designed to engage and inspire your child, allowing them to grow into the next best version of themselves. To learn more and enroll, visit our website at giftedstudy.org. I'm sure that you've seen throughout the years different types of gifted students. And this is one of my favorite questions to always ask because we've talked about like how like in the beginning, how sometimes there are stereotypes with gifted children. Have you ever had any interactions, obviously no names or anything, but like interactions with students that maybe didn't quite fit that mold? Yes, certainly. I would say a few come to mind. Let's say the first one that comes to mind is a ninth grade boy. Think about you're just your standard, very social. Everybody likes this particular student. Isn't really causing disruptions in class, but the type of student where you see them do the work and then they never turn in the work. You have the conversation with the parent who thinks that they are brilliant at home and they see them doing all of these things. I had a learner like that, was very like disengaged in some ways, but then we did this interesting instructional strategy called the cipher, which comes from like rap culture, where you're Hmm. basically like have students in like leadership positions within the class, like facilitating a conversation. And this really resonated with this particular boy who then started having these like really insightful like commentaries within the class, really understanding things and exhibiting that at a very deep level and eventually taking this leadership role of peer teaching, which you would not always expect. And then he started just producing like all of this like written work, leaning into the whole written verse to Mm -hmm. express certain things. And we were reading like of mice and men. And I think that's where a lot of his skills and talents and his innate like giftedness started to really manifest. And you understood that when he had an opportunity to be creative through dialogue, he was really engaged 
with the material. And it was after that that he then went on and eventually was in that traditional gifted student AIG AP track that he would have probably flew under the radar and never been noticed if if it wasn't for that. I would say maybe another profile is you're too cool for school (laughs) student, right? The learner (laughs) who just seems like nothing is of interest for him. And Mm. I had a particular student like this, but he was just a brilliant writer, but also very satirical. And I used to always joke with my high school students that satire is like the highest form um, of intelligence. (laughs) One, if if you like can understand it, but then two, if you can present that um, yourself. And I think it was, I think the biggest challenge for him is that I think even other educators flagged him for maybe like comorbidities, thought that maybe there were other things at play, ADHD, for instance, and were advocating for him to be moved down in level of classes for like additional support, Mm -hmm. which is the opposite of what this particular student needed. And I think it was through like some very tough conversations with a group of educators in IEP setting that he got the support that he actually needed and then was like on this AP projector et cetera at the high school level yeah and then I guess the third profile is really like your perfectionist who sometimes then they've been given this label of gifted like very early on school's very easy for them they play the game of school mm-hmm. and so then they reach a point where maybe they're challenged for the first time or encounter something that's challenging for them and they see it as a personal shortcoming or they think they're a fraud or they think that something is wrong with them and then you see it start to manifest as disengagement or other things because they're feeling the shame because they've been yeah. told that they're special sometimes mm-hmm. And like, how do you engage and interact and provide the support that particular student needs, both from an academic standpoint, but also just the other types of support to help in their mindset towards education and their understanding of how that relates to their identity and like what they've been told about themselves for so long. Yeah. As you were explaining that when it made me think of a student I have that's, and I always heard that like a lot of gifted kids were perfectionists and struggled with when they didn't understand something. And I, I always heard that and I hadn't really seen it like really like blatantly until this year. Now that I'm, I'm in an AIG room, I feel like I have some students, the minute we do something brand new and they don't just get it like that, they look at me and they're like, I don't understand this. This doesn't make any sense to me. And I'm like, we have to try and learn and push through. And, and you're, it's going to be, you're going to get it eventually. Just give it time. Like, and that's just something, it's so interesting how their brain is just, I don't get this initially. It doesn't make any sense. I don't even, it's, I don't even understand. And that's like the calm reactions of some of them really get upset when they don't get it or understand or succeed in the way that they thought they were going to. Yeah. And I always try, like sometimes at high school, it's easier because you can equate it to certain other things. So I'll say it's like a sport, right? If you're not pushing your muscles, if it's not like difficult, Mm -hmm. then you're not getting to where you need to be for the game. And sometimes that helps, but sometimes they're just, they don't want to talk about it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's true. I've seen that, the shutdown. Yeah. All right. So if our listeners want to get in contact with you, what's the best way for them to do that? We love to talk to educators. So even if you feel like you're not in a place to necessarily start or implement DFEQ, like we're always just trying to learn what's important, what's on people's minds, what's like top of the list in terms of priorities. So you can always reach out to me. I'm uh, Susan at DiffieQmetrics.com, or you could just um, email like our generic address, which is info at DiffieQmetrics.com, and then the team will route you to the person on our team who can best meet your needs or might be closest to you based on geography where you're based and so forth. Awesome. All right, so one of our last questions that we always ask, and we always get a lot of different responses, is we want to talk about the divide that the term giftedness causes. So sometimes it can lead to misconceptions as we've discussed, and it can even prevent students from being identified because they don't check those boxes that they're supposed to. 
check. Would you agree that term gifted is problematic or do you not think it is? And if so, would you rename it as something else? Yeah, I would say yes, there is an issue with the term. I think my last five years of teaching, we grapple with this, especially with the divide and what happens if a student is not identified. And at the time, we had an initiative to kind of address that. And it went through many different names because nothing was perfect. We're like, we're going to unlevel our classes. And then we're like, no, we're going to level up all of our classes. And then, mm. no, we're just going to call it detracking. And the idea was that you need to put these students in classrooms where they have opportunities and where they could potentially interact and receive a lot of these supports and, and resources and so forth. We talk a lot within our own team about the term gifted and what it means. And we think a lot of the same problems apply to a lot of the terms that are up for discussion as alternatives right now. Like you hear high potential learner, but then it's, does that mean that all learners don't have high potential? And that kind of yeah. flies in the face of what we think about in terms of like growth and, and learning and opportunities. And so that's just as bad, right? That's like a, a fixed mindset. So I think if I had to suggest like one term, I might say dynamic in the sense that there's like this understanding that for gifted learners, even within the context of their day, their context within like the type of things that they're engaging with, they need to be supported in different ways. And a, a student who's gifted in mo multiple subjects, for instance, might really resonate with something in a math class, but need to learn um, in a different way through history for example. And you just have to be ready to meet those dynamic needs and also understand that across learners, you can have a group of gifted students within the same room and they might need different supports and they might respond in different ways. So it's not one size fits all. It's not, mm -hmm. this is what I'm going to do with this group of learners. And I think if we continue to just think in those terms and adapt our approaches, then I think that we're doing what we can to help everyone be successful. I like we explain that. All right. Thank you so much, Susan. This has been Thank great. You. And I really, I was like, wow, like this is data is just something that I don't, it's a tough topic, I think sometimes, and it feels like another thing, but I really love how clear, how layered of a, a picture it gives of a student and all the different ways and easy to use. That sounds great. I feel like teachers love things that are easy to use. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much yeah. for inviting us on the podcast, big fans. And I feel like I could talk to you all day. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's so kind. <laughs> all right. I'll email you um, when this is going to come out. And if you have any questions or anything at all that comes up that you think about, just let me know. Great. Thank you so much. All right. Have a good day. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. And there you have it. We truly appreciate your time spent with us today. If you enjoyed this episode of They'll Be Fine, please consider sharing your thoughts. Leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible would mean the world to us, but we understand if it feels like a lot. Even a quick five-star rating or sharing this episode on your own social media can make a significant impact. Your support helps us reach more families and educators who are navigating and advocating for their gifted loved ones. We hope you'll join us on our next episode as we sit down with another amazing stakeholder in the gifted community. Until then, take care.